a listener production. The truth is that as long as our parliament looks so different to the community that it represents, it's not going to be doing its best job and it's not going to be reflecting the views of that community. So I think it's really important that we see progress and that we see progress speed up to be reflective of modern Australia. I'm Margie Hartley, executive coach to senior leaders around the globe, and this is Fast Track. Women in Australia have had the vote for over 100 years, and the first woman to be elected to the Australian Federal Parliament was 77 years ago. Yet, still the Federal Parliament is without understatement an environment of toxic low standards for our female politicians, who we have democratically voted to represent us. No one can deny the collective shame we have all felt as a nation listening to and watching the events of 2021 unfold, from the allegations of rape to tales of behaviour that defy the imagination of the worst teenage frat movies. What does it really feel like to be a female politician in Australia? And what really happens behind the closed doors of Canberra's Parliament House? My next guest has written a book that has been described as shocking, important, timely and unputdownable. It is a book that exposes the successes and the struggles of women in Australian Parliament. A book called Sex, Lies and Question Time. Kate Ellis spent 15 years in Parliament as a federal MP and she joins me here on Fast Track today. Kate, thank you for joining me. It's so wonderful to be with you. Thanks for having me. I've read the book and your timing seems to be perfect. You must have begun writing this book well before the public exposés this year. What prompted you to put pen to paper? Well, I think originally I wanted to write the book because I passionately want to see more women in Parliament and I want it to be better for them. I want it to be fairer. But then it actually went further than that. As as I kind of delved into the topic more, I realised that I just want our Parliament to be better for the Australian people. And the Parliament should be setting the example, leading the way, providing best practice and the longer that I'd been out of the parliament, the more I saw how much modern Australia has actually progressed much more and the parliament's been left behind. And that's not good for anyone, whether they're inside or out of politics. Mm. So representation of women in, in parliament, but particularly in the front bench currently, is poor. Has it always been this way or have we regressed as a nation? Well, it it's always been an underrepresentation of women in the parliament. We, we have seen progress. It's just, it kind of has been very slow and it's not evenly spread across the political divide. So some parties have put in place structures and are progressing much quicker than others. Um, but the truth is that as long as our parliament looks so different to the community that it represents, it's not going to be doing its best job and it's not going to be reflecting the views of that community. So I think it's really important that we see progress and that we see progress speed up. And as you said, some of the things that have come out in recent months um, show how important it is and how far the culture of that building has to go. 
um, to be reflective of modern Australia. Mm, mm. So you expose the way women parliamentarians are scrutinised for their appearance and their parenting and even their sex lives. Can you share your experience of that? Well, as part of the book, maybe it was a a bit of therapy for myself. I thought it'd be interesting to talk to other women to see what their experiences were because I certainly had many, many examples of sexualised rumours being made up about me as a way to undermine my credibility of gossip and slurs made. And what was interesting, so for the book, I spoke to 16 women from right across the political parties and every single woman had a story to tell about how they'd been treated differently in the parliament um, because they were a woman. So for some, it was this kind of, you know, what we've now termed slut shaming, um, which does attack your credibility and, you know, the seriousness with which you hold your job. If people are spreading rumours that you're busy having sex all over Parliament House, then obviously that impacts on your reputation. But for others, it was just a constant focus on their physical appearance. It's been said that you can't be too good looking because then people don't take you seriously and you get labelled as a bimbo. But You can't not put effort in because then you'll be disregarded. There's like a sweet spot in the middle where you've just got to look, I guess, completely mundane is um, the best spot for you to be taken seriously and have credibility. But also things like just social media abuse, um, the kind of feedback that women in parliament receive is much more violent and much more sexualised than what the men receive. So there was no doubt there was a huge range of differences. Um, But yeah, your question on sex lives being used against them. I mean, my most, I guess, extreme example of that was a really well-developed story about this love triangle that was allegedly going on in my office where me and my young female chief of staff were alleged to be both sleeping with the same male staff member. And this rumour was spread so far and wide that it actually nearly ran in newspapers across the country. And I had to put a lot of effort into stopping that um, from running. Absolutely no truth to it, but it was spread not just for weeks, but for months and years. And even today, I still have journalists telling me that they heard it so often that they just believed it. Now, if you're a young woman trying to establish yourself and your credibility and your seriousness and everyone's hearing, one of the first things they're hearing about you is that you're all involved in some sordid um, sex triangle when you're in your parliamentary office. Obviously, that has an impact on what people think of you. This feels shocking, Kate, but frankly, something like from a frat movie, as I said, or the 50s, I believe it was Malcolm Turnbull that said corporate Australia was well ahead of Canberra for the culture of diversity, equity and respect, which is saying quite a bit. Do you agree? I do. Um, One of the things that that I guess really surprised me is that when I announced that I was not going to run again and was leaving politics, my beloved AFL team, the Adelaide Crows, asked me if I'd join their board and I jumped at the opportunity. And so I remember sitting there after a few board meetings and working with the club a little bit. I just had this moment where it shocked me that I can be in what is a traditionally male area of AFL football and notice how different the culture is to the one that I'm used to in Parliament, that, you know, 
at the club, people listened to you, people took you seriously, people wanted your input. And I guess what's surprising is that I noted how unusual that felt to me because I hadn't really realised how far behind the the rest of Australia, the culture of parliament was until I got out and saw with my own eyes that that's not the way that the rest of the world is operating anymore, but the parliament sadly still does to a large extent. What made you leave? You'd had a really successful career as a young MP in the Rudd and Gillard governments. You were Minister for Early Childhood Education, Childcare and Youth, Minister for Employment and Participation, Minister for Women, Minister for Sport. That's a lot to give up. It was a it was a really hard decision. I absolutely passionately loved my job. And I think politics is one of those things where the job's never done. There's always more change to bring about. There's always another policy you're passionate about. There's always a project in your local community that you want to get funding for. So it's very, very hard to give up. And I found it very difficult. But I also knew that my life changed. Um, I now have two young children and, you know, the, the nature of federal politics in particular means that you're often away from home more often than you're there, um, particularly if you're a front bencher, if you're a cabinet minister, then there is a whole lot of travel beyond the parliament travel. And I think the honest thing is I'm not the mother that I thought I'd be. Having kids changed me and I just thought it was too big a sacrifice for me to make to miss that much of their lives when they were that young. So I decided I wouldn't run again and I would instead try and spend more time in Adelaide where um, my family is and how lucky am I that I got to make that choice. Mm. It's honouring different parts of your life and making that choice and I think that's something that we can all celebrate too. I was horrified, though, to read in 2008, which doesn't feel like that long ago, that you were voted Parliament's sexiest MP in a poll of federal MPs. And this was conducted by a Queensland newspaper. It seems completely outrageous, Kate, that the poll was conducted at all, but even more absurd that parliamentarians took part. It certainly does. (laughs) How did you manage to navigate your job and ignore that sort of noise? Well, you know, there was a few different polls and you're quite right that looking back on it now, that seems absurd that our federal parliamentarians would be spending their time um, filling out such a thing. I, I think for me, I didn't want to draw attention to it and make it a bigger story. So you don't want to speak out and say, I'm not interested in that. That's terrible because then that becomes a news story. Um, so you don't want to seem ungrateful, but you don't want to blow it up. And also you just want to focus on your job that, you know, I certainly never ran for parliament because I wanted to be a celebrity or because I wanted attention on um, my appearance or my outfits or anything else. But some of that, it goes with the territory a bit. And I think for women more so, you have to find a way to navigate that and to choose when you're going to jump up and down and object to it and to choose when you're just going to look the other way and try and get on with the more important stuff. And I don't know that I always got that call right, but I think that that's one of the things that women have to juggle each and every day in this job. Mm. Well, in the book, you also celebrate some amazing achievements from and by Australia's female parliamentarians from 
Julie Bishop, Julia Gillard, Linda Burney, Susan Lay. Is the experience universal that it's tough to navigate the toxic blokey Canberra culture? It sort of reminds me of a decade or so ago when it was always about navigating the blokey nature of corporate Australia. So is it always that it's tough to navigate for these women? Is that a universal experience? I think all women would say it's a tough job and that it's often made tougher for women. But it was universal that every single one of us said that it was worth it. And that's one of the reasons I was really keen to to write those chapters is because I think the Australian public have picked up on the culture of Parliament House. They've picked up on the sort of sexism that women in politics face. But we don't often tell the other side of the story why it's worth it why I think it is the best job in the world in terms of if you want to bring about change, if you want to make a difference to your community. And I guess the the story of how having women in our parliament has changed our country already, I thought that was a really important side to tell so that uh, I guess the general public can have a more balanced view and not think we're all mad for sticking our hands up and going in there. Um, there's a reason why women go into parliament and there's a reason why they stay there and and that we need more there because it does bring about a better Australia. And and I thought that was nice um, to have a bit of a focus on some of the positive sides because honestly, when I was writing some of the earlier chapters, um, it does become quite dark and that's not what I wanted to do. I didn't write this book because I was bitter about my experiences in any way. Like I am I am so grateful for the chance that I had to serve in the parliament. I just wanted to shine a light on some of the areas where we need to do better. Can you share some uplifting stories of resilience and success to give us some examples despite the culture? One of them was when I spoke with Julia Gillard, I just said to her, is there any policy that wouldn't have come about and wouldn't have been put in place if it wasn't for there being a woman in Parliament? And instantly she said to me, Jenny Macklin, we would not have paid parental leave in Australia if it wasn't for Jenny Macklin being elected. Like how amazing is that, that one woman who was um, worked so hard, did the hard yards, was so determined and kept fighting for that policy means that over a million Australian families have now had the chance to have paid leave to bond with their newborn child. So there was examples where there are things that just wouldn't have happened. Um, there are a whole lot of programs and policies that wouldn't have received attention And some of them are, you know, the big uh, multi-billion dollar ones, but some of them are smaller programs, um, inquiries into endometriosis, for example, or the funding that's gone into trying to prevent stillbirths. And there's a whole lot of things that it has been women that have championed. And I think that that's something that we should celebrate. Mm, And I love that they're appearing in your book and it allows us to see that really frank light and shade to the change that we want to see. What would you say to young women, Kate, wanting to represent their country as a parliamentarian? Oh, I'd say step up and um, and do it and know that there are a lot of people who have gone before who would be really happy to help or to offer advice. There was, there was some really key pieces of advice that the women I interviewed gave that I think probably apply much more broadly than just to the career in politics. But one of them was to, 
you know, be really sure about what your purpose is um, before you embark on it. Because it's like anything, when you have a busy job, when there's a million things going on, your attention can be taken away. So you've got to have a laser-like focus on your purpose to make sure that you continue to advance that. But the other one that I thought was really important and really interesting is to know where you get your strength and your confidence from, which may sound obvious, but as in any kind of stressful career, there'll be times when you'll be challenged, when your self-esteem will take a beating, um, where you might start to doubt yourself. And different people have different ways of building themselves up. You know, for some, it might be going on national television and having people adore you and send you wonderful messages about how brilliant you are. Um, for me, when I was going through a hard time, it was always getting back into my local community and talking to my local residents, which reminded me of why I was there and how much some of the other rubbish doesn't matter, that it's ultimately about people. So I think different people have, have different ways to, to find their strength and their confidence, but it's important that you identify what yours are. Um, because there will be times when you'll need to draw on that. But yeah, it was it was pretty amazing experience for me to get to speak to such a diverse group of successful women who've been at the top of their game to get their advice for the next generation. And I kind of wish that I'd done that at the beginning of my career and not the end, mm -hmm. but hopefully it helps those that will that will come next. Well, it's an outstanding read and deeply fascinating. I couldn't get my nose out of the pages as as I was researching for our interview. And I learned a lot too about the history of Parliament and participation of women and others and what they face. So, Kate, I, I want to thank you so much for chatting to me today, but also for writing the book because it's going to be really useful for so many people. Oh, thank you so much for having me and for reading the book. I must admit that I have a stack of books in my bedroom that I keep buying and not finding time to read. So now when anyone says that they've read my book, I'm just full of gratitude <laughs> that you've actually given the time to start it and read it all the way through. So thank you. And I do hope that it's helpful for others and ultimately that it helps bring about change. Yes, and bring some equity, respect and opportunity not only to women, but everybody in politics in this country. Thank you so much, Kate. Thanks again for having me. Fast Track was presented by me, Margie Hartley. Producer, Tina Matalov. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.